It's a tremendous joy for me to be here this morning. A couple of things I would like to mention before we read our primary text. We've been here just about a year, and um, it was 1st of August last year when we first came. And I want to just thank Christ Bible Church for the welcome that we were given. People came to us, talked to us about things other than just, hi, how are you, where you're from, and how's the weather, wherever you came from, on a level that desired to, to actually minister to our hearts. And, and that was a tremendous blessing to us. And I want to encourage you to continue to do that <clears throat> as folks come in, maybe with whom you're not familiar. But I could, I could name names of, you know, it, it was, it was a little strange. It wasn't everybody at once, but one week it was one family and another week it was another family. And, and, and as we kind of were here for a while, the families kind of filtered through and we got to know most of you in that process. And it was a blessing to us for which we're very grateful. It's also been a blessing to hear the word of God expounded on a consistent basis. In a, in a manner that is, I think, pleasing to the Lord and that seeks with all of one's might to point others to Christ. And so uh, we, we're very grateful for what the Lord has done through this church in our own hearts, our own lives. I also want to let you know this morning that, um, and I want to go back to last week if you were here, um, Nathan actually preached on a passage that, and dealt with some things that um, are a little bit difficult. I don't know if he knew when he started uh, just how difficult some of that was going to be or not, but I, um, I know that when the service ended, Pastor Damon came up and said some of those issues that were brought to the fore, he still struggled with. And I think we all do. Where exactly, I mean, the general principle, the general teaching of Scripture is there and, and we're to obey the authorities over us and so forth. But where are the lines always drawn about when we obey God rather than man? And sometimes that's easy and sometimes it's not so easy. And so I, I know Pastor Damon asked, stated, you know, sometimes it raises more questions in his own heart, in our own lives, than, than it answers and, and it can that's where we have to live in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. But I want to remind you of that this morning in part because I think the text that we're going to deal with will at least help us a little bit in dealing with situations where there could be confusion, where there could be questions that still come up in our minds. I also want to draw a a distinction between the question that was asked by the Herodians and the question that's going to be asked by the prophet that we're going to look at. And really, I will not go so far as to say that the question the Herodians asked was a bad question. We do need to know when to draw the line between obeying the authorities over us on this earth and obeying God. We, we need to understand that. I do not think it was the question itself, but I think it was the motivation of the question because the prophet that we're going to look at asks some questions and he questions God. He doesn't understand what God is doing. But his motivation is completely different. And so there are going to be questions that come into your mind that you're going to wonder about and you're going to wonder what God is doing sometimes, but I assure you the motivations behind your questioning are vital. It is made very clear early on in that passage in Mark that it was hypocritical. They didn't really want an answer. They just wanted Jesus in trouble. They didn't really much care if he was in trouble with the Jewish people or if he was in trouble with the Roman authorities, if they could achieve their end in the process. When Habakkuk the prophet asks questions of God, he recognizes that God is good 
and that God is righteous and that contributes to his confusion because some of the things that are asked or some of the things that are actually happening, he just doesn't understand. There was one other comment that was made that I want to allude to this morning before I read my text, and it is this. <clears throat> Since this dovetails with what Nathan preached last week, and that's kind of in the providence of God because I'd already kind of determined this is what I was going to do before Nathan preached last week. But since it somewhat dovetails with that, when the service is over, Nathan's back there in the back and he'll answer any questions that you have. <laughs> Sorry, Nathan, I just couldn't avoid because that got dumped on you last week as well. So from here on out, if you ever have questions about anybody's sermon, Nathan is the one who's going to answer for you. That's, that's what we have. Take your, take your Bibles. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of Habakkuk. This is maybe the most difficult book in the Old Testament. I don't know why I chose this one. <clears throat> because it deals with what theologians would call theodicy, it's dealing with the problem of evil. It's, it, uh, at some level, at the very least, it is dealing with a very difficult issue that we'll delve into a little bit. We certainly won't have time to uh, go through it in any real detail. But Habakkuk chapter 1, and we're going to read through the first 11 verses, if you stand with me, as we read from the Word of God this morning. The burden or the oracle, that's a, that's a word that describes something that is, that is just that, a burden. Uh, uh, this is a great concern and it's weighty. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw, and then Habakkuk questions God. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. And here's God's reply. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you do not believe, though it were told you. For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings, and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold, for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. Then this mind changes. Then his mind changes, and his trans, he transgresses. He commits offense ascribing this power to his God. Let's pray. Father, we have questions ourselves at times. And as we look at the world around us, we may wonder what you are doing. Sometimes, Father, it seems that things are completely out of control and that justice is not really truly served. And it causes conflict in our own hearts at times. And we ask, Father, that as we look at this passage, that we would learn the lesson that you sought to teach your prophet of old. And that we would be pointed to your truth and your sovereignty. And would be reminded that the judge of all the earth will do what is just. And so, Father, we ask that you take your word and calm our hearts 
and draw any who know not Christ to the Savior. May we lift up your name today so that you will be praised by all who are here. For it's in Christ's name that we ask it. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. I want to start out with a very pointed statement, but one that we've already alluded to, really. And it's this. Know this. Any person who always claims to understand what God is doing is either deceived or else is a deceiver. Let me repeat that. Any person who claims to always know what God is doing is either personally deceived or is himself or herself a deceiver. It is clear from the writers of Scripture, who we assume were certainly godly individuals, that God cannot always be comprehended. His ways cannot always be comprehended. And why should that be something that seems odd to us since he is infinite and we are finite. A conversation with a couple yesterday, that came to the fore in a part of our conversation. And, and really, throughout all eternity, since we are finite, we can learn something new about God all the time, but we will never fully comprehend him. And we're never going to fully comprehend everything that he sees fit to bring forth on this earth. I am reminded of something Sproul said some time ago, and that is if there's one rogue molecule in the entire universe, then God is not sovereign. God does what he chooses to do. And if we question that too much, we can actually end up coming back to what Paul says in Romans 9. Who are, who are we? Who am I to question God? And yet the prophet is going to question God. And again, we know that other prophets didn't always understand what God was trying to do or what God was doing. Isaiah, in Isaiah 52, verses 13 to 15, gives a prophecy to which he responds at the beginning of chapter 53, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It was so astounding to him that that he, who's going to believe this? And Peter had this to say about a lack of understanding that was sometimes characteristics of, of the Old Testament prophets. He said in chapter 1, verse, verses 10 to 12, of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. You do understand that as humans redeemed by the grace of God, angels can't really comprehend the magnitude and the glory of what God has done. Habakkuk, who was a man of great faith, at least certainly by the end of the book that bears his name, just didn't understand what God was doing. None of us fully knows. And so all of us must learn the lesson that Habakkuk had to learn, and that's the lesson of faith. We must learn to walk by faith, to live by faith, for it is only when we live by faith, walking in the ways of God, only then will we walk in righteousness. First four verses of this prophecy manifest in Habakkuk a great desire for God's honor to be upheld among his people. Let's look at those verses again that we read a moment ago. This is a burden which the prophet saw. And then verse two, Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? We're gonna get a, an idea of what he's crying about as we go along. He says, even cry out to you violence. It is obvious from what he says here that the land was filled with violence. And you will not save. 
Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. The law, he says, is powerless. It is not being applied properly. It is going forth in perverse judgments. We could spend a little while and talk about the court system, if you want to, that was prevalent in that day. And the judges were making improper judgments. You get the idea from this, though the text doesn't say it specifically, that they would have been able to be bribed. It was, it was the people in power who were being uh, let off when they did something wrong in the system and who were... Uh, and it was the poor people very often who were being judged harshly and improperly for things perhaps that they didn't even do. That whole culture in Judah was completely away from what God designed in his law. Sounds a little like some other times and places with which we're familiar. The Lord sought that the people might walk in righteousness, but they walked down a path of greater and greater sinfulness. The prophet was looking for a place of peace, but witnessed violence in the land. God's man searched for justice, but those given the duty to assure that the law was upheld were perverting it. The word of God was largely ignored or rejected. This led H.A. Ironside, who's former president of Moody Bible Institute, and that's been quite a few years ago. Ironside said this, he said, unquestionably the paramount reason why we get as a rule so little out of God's word is because of the appalling lack of self-judgment and brokenness before its author. So prevalent on every hand, true-hearted subjection to God and his word is very little known or regarded. In great measure, it has been forgotten that there must be a right moral state to enter into the things of God, for the spiritual things are spiritually discerned. He went on to say, consequently, self-complacent Christians walking as men are often found seeking to make up for lack of genuine spirit-given ministry by receiving or listening to empty platitudes or expressions learned by rote and given out in a mechanical parrot-like manner instead of waiting upon God until his voice is heard in the soul, exercising the conscience of the hearer and speaker alike. The word of God in Habakkuk's day had fallen into disuse or was being misinterpreted and the law of God was being misapplied. They had grown cold and complacent about God's word. And so the law was rejected it was rejected even by those who had the responsibility to teach it and those who were required to enforce it. One of the things that endeared me to this church before we ever came, and I don't know if most of you know this or not, but I talked to your pastor before we ever set foot back in Tennessee, and I found great joy in knowing that there was someone who was serious about the Word of God who was serious about understanding it properly and proclaiming it understandably. In too many places and in too many hearts, the same problems that were occurring in Habakkuk's day are happening now. Now, before we examine God's words to Habakkuk in chapter 1, verses 5 through 11, which is really where I want to spend our time, I want to give you just a little more of an idea concerning the setting of the passage. Uh, some of you, uh, I mean, are used to somebody preaching in series all the time, going through books. I'm trying to do two things this morning. I'm trying to give background that I would have given in the first sermon I would have preached on this book. And it's also been several months since I've been in the pulpit, and it's usually about five minutes longer for every week I've been out. So um, what is this background? Habakkuk prophesied most likely during the reign of Jehoiakim. 
one of the evil kings who governed Judah right at the end of Judah's existence. It's also likely that this prophecy was given during the rise to power of the Chaldeans and that the Chaldeans at this point in time were still, and I put this in quotes, still friendly toward Judah when Habakkuk prophesied. That friendship would soon change. Charles Steinberg stated the historical situation in which Habakkuk wrote in these terms. He said it has been suggested that probably at this time the Babylonian nation was still friendly. Soon they would invade the land in three stages in the time of Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. Our prophet has these invasions in view. And so with that historical setting, this is toward the end of Judah's time. This is a little while before Nebuchadnezzar comes to the throne. It's, it's a little while before Judah falls to the Babylonians. There's still a bit of a friendship that might be there because the Assyrians would have still been around, but weakening and Babylon was about to take them and everybody else. And so that's the setting for this. And so when God tells Habakkuk that he's going to raise up the Chaldeans, Habakkuk knows a little about them. He knows they're more wicked than the people of Judah, and he's going to have some grave concerns. So what do we learn here? Well, let's begin in verse 5, and let's take this. I'm going to, I'm going to give you three I usually don't do this, but so you'll know, there are three points that I'm going to give. This is not three points in a poem, um, but three points. And then there are five principles that I want to draw out of this text that I think are going to help us to deal with where we are today. Because I see the real possibility that we're not Judah, but I see the real possibility that a nation blessed so much as the United States has been that God could judge us because we've turned our back on him in a similar fashion with say Afghanistan even or China or name them. Because I see violence everywhere. Before we moved down here, we lived an hour from Chicago. South side of Chicago is a, is a war zone. The murder capital of the state of Michigan was 10 miles away. Smaller town, but on per, per capita, it was the murder capital of the state. Tragic. Tragic. And so what can we learn from this that's going to help us as we face a situation where literally we could cry out to God exactly like Habakkuk did. Lord, there's just violence everywhere. Justice is being perverted. There's, there are contentions, it seems, almost on every hand. What, what are you doing? What's going on? What are we facing? Verses 5 and 6. You want to know what the big point of this is? God's answers can be confusing. You say, Brother Robert, that's not very helpful yet. But that's where we get in 5 and 6. Notice what he says. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, amazed. For I will work a work in your days which you do not believe if it were told you. For indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. We learn from Habakkuk's response to the Lord in verses 12 to 17, in verses 12 to 17, that the prophet was confused by this answer from God. He prayed that the Lord would bring an end to the gross sin of the people. He had longed for a true revival, and yet when the Lord revealed to him how he would bring about an end to this sin, and surely in the end, hopefully, a unified worship of the one true God. Habakkuk was completely flummoxed. He had no idea how God could do this in the way he was describing. Be utterly astounded. God's answer would go on to affirm that he would bring the sin of Judah to a halt through the judgment 
that he would inflict on them and that this judgment would come in the form of the Chaldean armies. Habakkuk, by the way, would have been familiar with the fact that God does judge the sin of his people and perhaps included a desire for God to judge even when he was praying. But he couldn't imagine that the Lord would judge in the way he decreed here. Note again that the Lord first tells Habakkuk to look among the nations. From all we can make of the context of the prophecy, I think we have to conclude that the prophet wanted the Lord to judge and correct the sins of the people of Judah with a judgment that would be unmistakably seen as coming from him. And God had done that in the past. For example, not on the nation of Israel, but God judged the Egyptians with harsh plagues as he moved to bring the children of Israel out of bondage to Egypt. Following the sin in the wilderness with the golden calf, the Lord sent a plague among the Israelites. When the sons of Aaron offered strange fire, God slew them immediately. Very obvious that judgment came from God. When Korah led a rebellion against the exclusive call to the priesthood and Aaron's descendants, God opened the ground and swallowed them. And so perhaps Habakkuk was thinking that the Lord would judge Judah in a, in a similar fashion, something that was unmistakably the judgment of God to wake them up so that they would turn from their sin and come to faith in the Savior, their Lord. When David sinned by numbering the people in the census, he was given three options. The land could suffer for, through seven years of famine, or they could flee from their enemies for three months, or there could be a plague. What a, what, a, what a choice that was for King David. And he chooses the plague because God, he thought, excuse me, would be merciful in the midst of that. He deemed it to be a more merciful judgment than fleeing from their enemies even for three months. And yet, the judgment that God says he is going to bring on Judah in this case is fleeing from their enemies, being defeated by their enemies with no promise at this point, though you can find them in other places, but no promise to Habakkuk of when this would end. And I think we also see a problem in Habakkuk's prayers and theology here. His motives are good. He, he's not trying to be hypocritical and he's not trying to get God in some kind of trouble. He, he wants to know the answer. But he really should have known that God sometimes uses nations more evil than Judah was at that time to judge his people. Had that not happened over and over again during the days of the judges, when the Moabites or some other group would come in and, and would impact the people of God in adverse ways as judgment from God upon them. He should have known. But we need to be careful in our own day, in our own land, that we don't conclude that the Lord isn't going to judge us and judge us in a manner that's beyond our comprehension because we've been so blessed in the past. If anything, it makes us more guilty The Lord has often used nations more evil than those he brings judgment upon to bring that judgment. We shouldn't think because we've been blessed by God in the past that we won't be judged now. We can't allow ourselves to conclude that the United States has sent out more Christian missionaries in the last hundred years than any other nation on earth and from that extrapolate that we can't be judged by another nation. Again, the fact that we've been so blessed by God and have rejected him leaves us extremely guilty before him who is holy. Much has been given to us 
both physically and spiritually, and much really is to be required. Much had been given to the people of Judah, and they took the abundance and turned away from the God who gave it. And though all men and nations are ultimately responsible to the Lord, God's blessings created for them a greater responsibility. That responsibility forsaken, they would know the harsh hand of God's judgment upon them, and that through an indirect source called the Chaldean armies. I want you to notice in this text, and this is a part of the sovereignty of God, that God was raising up the Chaldeans. First part of verse 6, I indeed am raising up the Chaldeans. This is God's work. We're told elsewhere that the Lord raises up kings and puts down kings. That would be Romans 13, 1, Daniel 2, 20 and 22. And so we have to conclude that kingdoms, even evil ones, are raised up by God for the fulfillment of his own purposes. He is sovereign over all. Now let me point out something here. If all we knew about God was that he is sovereign over all, we might be tempted to condemn God for much of what he has done and is allowing in this world. We might seek to condemn the Lord for things that are occurring in our own lives and families. And yet we must realize that he has revealed much more than just that he's sovereign. He has also revealed that he is good and that he cannot sin. Habakkuk understood this. Look at verses 12 to 17. And again, this is, this is not my primary text, but I think it's important to keep this together. Verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? Now again, I don't think that Habakkuk at this point is condemning God. I think he just, he is so confused. We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? They take up all of them with a hook. They catch them in their net and gather them in their dragnet. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet because by them their share is sumptuous and their food plentiful. Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. Notice where the prophet ends up. He's going to get on the watchtower and just watch and wait for God to answer There is, a, there is an element of faith already here. He knows there's an answer. He just doesn't understand it. And how many times are you or, or am I in that same position where things are going on in our world and in our lives personally where we just don't understand what God is doing? We're forced to wait on God. And we may find ourselves like Habakkuk wanting to climb up in the watchtower and just wait and say, God, there's got to be an answer. Would you reveal it to me? These things deal with some of the core issues of our lives, some of the deep things, some of the things that are the most stressful for us. God raised them up. By the way, unlike the gods of the Greeks and Romans and the Chaldeans and others before them, the one true God was above sin. And so we must know and accept that all that he does and allows, even when evil comes, 
is indicative of no sin in God. God is good. All of us are familiar with the passage in Romans 8, 28. That for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, he causes all things to work together for good. But it's interesting to me there that he doesn't say all things are good. He says he will cause all things to work together for good. You know, the next time you have a flat tire on the interstate, you, you probably aren't going to think in the moment that that's a good thing. But God is going to use even that to accomplish his good purpose in your life. And then the scheme of things that cause distress in our hearts, that's pretty minor. So God's answer can be confusing. Habakkuk finds himself not understanding. Notice also God's actions can be crushing. God's answer can be confusing. His, his actions can be crushing. Verses 6 to 10, the last part of verse 6 through 10. The, script, the description given to the Chaldeans here and what they will do to Judah and other nations before them is really frightening. Consider that description beginning at the middle of verse 6. A bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like, bee, like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings and princes and are scorned by them. They deride every, or, yeah, deride every stronghold for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. What's described here at the time was basically an unstoppable force, an unstoppable army. And as you look at this, you'll notice in verses 6 to 8 that God's judgment will be swift like the Chaldeans that, he will, that he'll use. This was a time of siege warfare, and sometimes that was agonizingly, an agonizingly slow process, but the Chaldeans had become so expert at it that they were just taking over things so swiftly it was just almost unbelievable. This description, by the way, was perfectly accurate to what you read in other history books and so forth. Warren Wiersbe said that God had warned his people time and again, but they wouldn't listen. Prophet after prophet had declared the word only to be rejected. And he had sent natural calamities like droughts and plagues and various military defeats, but the people wouldn't listen. Instead of repenting, the people hardened their hearts even more and turned for help to the gods of the nations around them. They had tried God's long suffering uh, long enough and it was time for God to act. And when God was going to act, he acted now. And this judgment started, it wasn't gonna take long for it to be fulfilled. His judgment would be like the Chaldean army, swift, powerful. We also notice here in verses 9 and 10 that God's judgment can be severe, like the Chaldeans he used. These two verses are answered. They come for violence. What does that mean? They come for violence. I'll tell you what it means. They enjoyed violence. They enjoyed killing people. And this is not modern day warfare. You know, don't look at what was going on in the war that the Chaldeans were going to bring on the children of Israel. Don't look at that as somebody's going to drop a bomb from 30,000 feet or fire a rocket from 1,000 miles away. This was bloody, hand-to-hand, -hand, screams, 
and yells and gore. I better quit. Some of you will want to eat lunch in a little while. And they enjoy it. They enjoyed watching some man's eyes roll back in his head in death as the scream came from his lips. They were truly a vile, vicious people. No wonder the prophet is struggling to understand what God is saying. You're, you're going to bring this on your own people. And just think about the brutality of the Chaldeans. Nebuchadnezzar comes and finally takes Jerusalem under the reign of Zedekiah. Remember what he did? Zedekiah and many of the people tried to flee. And they caught them. And Nebuchadnezzar lined up all of Zedekiah's sons and killed them in front of him and then put Zedekiah's eyes out. The last thing that man saw on the face of this earth was his own sons being beheaded or slain in however, whatever manner. That's cruel. It's hard to imagine anything a lot more cruel than that. That's cruel. So God's actions can be crushing. When God brings judgment, it can be crushing. Did the children of Israel deserve judgment? Yes. Did they deserve a judgment this severe? Yes. God, who is going to always do justly, brings an appropriate judgment. The land was filled with violence anyway. He was going to make it violent, all right. It's a little like God does in any day and age. You, if, if you reject him long enough, he will turn you over to your own vices. There's a third point, and I want to move pretty quickly here. But a third point I want to make, and it's that God's anger cannot be avoided by those who will not honor him. Eventually, if we do not honor God, his anger will be manifest toward us. The Chaldeans themselves... And this is going to be part of God's answer to Habakkuk's dilemma. The Chaldeans themselves are going to be judged. Verse 11, though, it says, His mind changes and he transgresses. He commits offense, ascribing this power to his God. The, the reading there is a little bit difficult. The, the idea there really is that their power, their, their might was their God. As you read further in this book, you're going to find that their power was going to be judged by the one who is God. All nations and all people who depend on their own might for victory in the midst of battle discover eventually that their God falls far short of the true God. For us today, we must always remember that no matter how long, strong our military may be, no matter how um, great victories may have been won in the past, that God is the one who gives victory and God is the one who brings a people to defeat. If you take on the forces, even uh, the spiritual forces in a spiritual warfare, if you take on those forces in your own power and you think you're good enough, strong enough, able enough to do that on your own, you're going to find yourself in defeat. We must depend on God as we face whatever the enemy may be. Now let me give you five principles that flow out of this. And they're going to, they're going to overlap a little bit, but I, I think they're distinct enough to give you five God's answers to our prayers sometimes can be confusing. God's actions can be crushing. God's anger can't be avoided by those who will not honor him. And so what are these principles? Well, the first one is this. God will not forever remain silent concerning sin. 
I'm going to draw a principle out of this. Habakkuk is crying out to God about his own people, about the people of Judah. Lord, there's violence everywhere. There's contention everywhere. There's a misapplication of your law on every hand, it seems. How can you just wait and wait? How can you not judge this? And God says, my timing, but judgment will come. And God will not forever remain silent about sin. The Lord judges sin, and though that judgment may be delayed for a season, judgment comes. On a personal basis, we need not be forever condemned by our sin, however, because the Lord dealt with sin at the cross. And this is where we must end up here. Jesus died in order that all sinners who will repent and come to him in faith might be forgiven and might know eternal life. We look at a passage like this and we say, boy, they really were sinful. And the temptation is to not look inside our own hearts and realize we are really sinful. And without God's giving of Christ, judgment is all that awaits. In fact, all sin not dealt with at the cross will be dealt with in temporal and eternal judgment. Let not God's delay cause you to grow comfortable in a sinful condition. Second principle follows on the heels of that, and that is that God will judge. The first kind of says he's not going to remain silent about sin forever. He, judgment may seem delayed, but God will judge. We cannot afford to forget that God will judge and that God's judgments on sin will be harsh. Scripture speaks here of the immediate judgment of Judah as being tremendously violent and frightening. Our Lord Jesus spoke more of hell than he did of heaven. The end of all those who refuse the Lord Jesus Christ along with the fallen angels and Satan himself will be the death that is the second death or the lake of fire. God always judges sin. And you will pay the penalty for your sin or Christ will have paid the penalty for your sin. And God will not apologize to anyone or any nation because he judged some but not others. That won't happen. And only in Christ is there freedom from God's eternal judgment. Only in Christ is there freedom from God's eternal judgment. God will judge sin. Third, God will not always act in a way with which we are comfortable. I wish I didn't have to mention this one. God will not always act in a way with which we are comfortable. Again, it's true that Romans 8.28 tells us that all things work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. But the verse doesn't say that all things are good. Has it ever dawned on you that God is more concerned about your sanctification than He is your comfort? God is more concerned about your sanctification than He is your comfort? Any of the rest of you ever think, oh, Lord, I wish you'd just help me to be comfortable? <laughs> he will give us what we need. And what we need is not necessarily comfort. What we need is sanctification if we know Christ. He's more interested in the righteousness of a nation than he is the security of a nation. Habakkuk was uncomfortable with the revelation that the Lord gave him and will at times be uncomfortable with the answers to the prayers that we pray, but God has his purpose. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. Every time I read Lloyd-Jones, I think he always says things so well. He said, we all tend to prescribe the answers to our prayers. 
We think that God can come in only one way, but scripture teaches us that God sometimes answers our prayers by allowing things to become much worse before they become better. He may sometimes do the opposite of what we anticipate. He may overwhelm us by confronting us with a Chaldean army. Yet it is a fundamental principle in the life and walk of faith that we must always be prepared for the unexpected when we're dealing with God. You know what your temptation is and my temptation is? Our temptation is to put God in a box and never allow for God to have the ability to get out of the box and do something that we don't expect. And yet, we must understand that God will not always act in a way that makes us comfortable. A fourth thing that we see, a fourth principle that we can draw from this is that God uses even evil people to accomplish his will. This is a tough one. And by the way, I don't propose to give you all the answers on how all this works. I'm just drawing the principles out here that are obvious to me. God uses even evil people to accomplish his will. And we can go through history and see that over and over again. But I'll just give you one that the scriptures give. Romans 9, 17. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. God used evil Pharaoh to accomplish his own purposes. And if God could use Pharaoh, he can use anybody else, and he does. Isn't it ironic that the person who most shakes his fist in the face of God ultimately will be used by God to bring glory to God? It's ironic, but it's true. It's true. By the way, aren't you glad that in Christ we're on the winning side of all of this? That's uh, But that evil person is not out from under the authority of God, not ultimately. God will use all things, even evil things and evil people to bring glory to himself. And then the fifth principle is this. God will be long-suffering, but will not forever suffer the sins of mankind. Do you see that in the first four verses when, when Habakkuk is crying out, how long, God, are you going to allow this violence to go uncontested? How long are you not going to judge? How long is, is justice going to be perverted? It's been going on for a while. Habakkuk doesn't understand why. God is long-suffering. And we can see evidences of that again in Scripture. Even though Habakkuk couldn't imagine why God's judgment hadn't already come, he again should have known that, that God is long-suffering. In the days before the flood, God gave the world's population 120 years. Noah, the preacher of righteousness, preached for 120 years. or thereabout. And the only people that ever believed what he taught, the only people that ever believed what he preached were his own sons and their wives and his wife. Eight people. Somewhere along the line, Noah learned the, uh, the lesson of faithfulness. Faithfulness. What a hard road that had to be, though. I did hear somebody one time say one of the greatest acts of faith in all the history of the world was when Noah cut down the first tree to build the ark. I don't know, maybe it was 
when he got in about the middle of the job, that's, that, that may have taken even more faith to keep going. In the days of Abraham, he gave the nations of, Can of Canaan 400 years and none of them repented. And so they were finally judged. And God may seem to delay his judgments today, but we can be assured that he does and will judge. The wicked may seem to prosper, but, the but in the judgment there will be no advocate for them. The wicked will receive their due reward. Their own evil will testify against them. And thank God that for those who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is not the evil of their own lives that will serve as the basis for their judgment, but the righteousness of Christ will serve as the basis for our judgment. In fact, Jesus pleads his own righteousness before the Father even now. And his righteousness will be our holy robe throughout eternity. In each of these five areas, we deal with God's sovereignty. No man will tell God when to act or how to act or where to act. And so we simply must learn to be content with God's sovereignty. We must learn to live by faith. And that walk of faith begins with, a, with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life died an atoning death for all who will trust him and rose from the grave in victory over sin and death and Satan. The one who ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for his people. It begins there. And if you've never come to the place where you have forsaken self and forsaken sin and turned to Christ and trusted him alone, You must do that or perish. And for those of us who know Christ, faith doesn't end the day that we trust him. It begins. You get to the end of 1 Corinthians 13, And the scripture says, now abideth faith, hope and love, these three, and the greatest of these is love. You ever, you ever stop to contemplate why the greatest of these is love? Is it, a, is it that, that faith and hope aren't important? Well, no, they're extremely important. But I think I can give you a little bit of, of a perspective on that. We today walk by faith, and we will walk by faith until we see him. And faith will give way to sight. When we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. What a joy to think about the day of our glorification, when we fight sin and evil and the devil no more. Faith gives way to sight. And today we hope. And that's not a, I hope so, I hope we'll get there or anything like that. It is a firm hope, knowing our hope is the return of Christ. Our hope is being in his presence for all eternity. That's our hope. And that hope will be realized. And so we won't need the hope anymore because we will live in the realization of that hope. Faith will turn to sight, hope will be realized, and love will continue forever. That's why it's greater. The need for the faith and the need for the hope will end. But the necessity of love and the reality of love and the joy of love will continue forever. But only for those who know Christ. By the way, I would be amiss if I didn't take you to the verse of Scripture in this little book where God drives home the lesson. Chapter 2, 
verse 4. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him. But the just shall live by his faith. You're not always going to understand what God is doing. And there may be times in your life when you cry out, Lord, why? Job did, and he was a godly man. He cried out so violently a few times that I think he had to ask for forgiveness at the end of the book because of it. We're living in troubled days. I'm watching things in America that I never thought I would ever see. Let me illustrate it real quickly and I'll be done. I heard somebody talking just recently about Romans, uh, Romans 1. That when you suppress the knowledge of God, you end up with a sexual revolution. And we had it in the 60s, early 70s. That eventually degenerates into a homosexual revolution. Which eventually degenerates into a reprobate or a debased mind. The term this man used was insanity. You ever look at our culture and think that's just insane? I can illustrate it really easily. We have a, a wonderful situation in this church where it's not altogether wonderful. We probably need a little more gray hair in, in the congregation. But we got lots of young people here, which is amazing because I'm always told the only way you can get young people is to have so-and-so kind of music and do this and that and something else. And you got all these young families here with kids. Many of you with kids, at least. And so you're very familiar with children being born. We almost always know what the kid is before it's born now. I'm just old enough that my parents didn't know what I was going to be till the doctor picked me up and said, it's a, and in my case, it's a boy. You know what doctors, if they live under the political correctness of our day do, Let's say that they haven't told the parents yet what it is from ultrasounds and so forth, and the baby's born. And here's what they do. If they live up to political correctness, they pick the little one up and hold it up to mom and dad and say, it's a... And they can't say anything else. It's a... It's a what? Well, we don't know yet. Well, what's wrong with your eyes? Well, it doesn't matter what our eyes see. We don't know yet. Because it might choose to be whatever. You know what that is? That's insanity. That's insanity. If you can't look at a newborn and know if it's a boy or a girl, that's insanity. And that's where our culture is. By the way, that's part of the judgment of God. He turns us over to our own vices. That's it. And into this insane world in which we live, God enters and gives grace so that people might believe in the Son of God who died to redeem us out of this mess that we're in. To redeem us out of our own sinfulness. Left unchecked. That would rebel against God. And forever be punished in the lake of fire. The just shall live by his faith. How about in your own life? Are you living by faith? Or is there something else? 
the just will live by his faith. And I pray by God's grace that you and I will live and walk by faith. Father, apply your word to our hearts. May we never forget what we hear and learn from your word. Father, there are times that we look out at our world and we just wonder what is going on. And we, we wonder sometimes, like Habakkuk, why you haven't judged already in ways that are more obvious than seen. Yet we realize that you even now are judging as you turn us over to our own evil. We pray that you bring healing to this land and you'll only do that as people hear and heed the truth of your word, gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who left the glories of heaven, took upon human flesh, lived a perfect life, and died as a sacrifice for sin so that all who trust him can be forgiven. So, Lord, we ask that you bring forgiveness to people and that you help us who have been forgiven already to walk by faith. For it's in Christ's name that we ask it. Amen.